Good morning. Please open your Bibles, if you have one, to John chapter 6, the sixth chapter of John. And this morning, after introducing the whole chapter last week, we're going to dive in to uh, the text. I remind you, the flow of the text is the miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, followed by Jesus crossing the sea. The crowd follows him. And then the rest of the chapter is a discourse, interaction between the crowd and Jesus, culminating in the defection, the desertion of many, if not most, of Jesus' disciples. And finally, Peter confessing, Lord, where else shall we go? You alone have the words of life. Um, So we're going to look at that miracle this morning, the feeding of the 5,000. The only event of Jesus' ministry, the only miracle of Jesus' ministry, contained in all four Gospels. There's very little commonality for all the four Gospels, mostly because of John. Um, All four of them have the feeding of the 5,000. All four of them have the triumphal entry. All four of them have the events surrounding Jesus' arrest, trial, crucifixion, and resurrection. And that's it for commonality because almost 90% of what John relates is original. John, you remember, is aware of the other Gospels. He's he's hand-selected these. And so he chose, he hand-selected to give an account already um, attested to by three witnesses. And so I, I believe he has a purpose in that. And let's, let's read the first 15 verses of John 6, see if the Lord will give us insight and understanding what that purpose is. John 6, 1 through 15. You'll find the notes in the bulletin. If you don't have a Bible, you'll find the text on the back of the notes. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from five barley loaves, from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Lord God, we pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that we would see the sign and see its significance, that we would understand what you would have us to learn, um, that we too would Um, with the disciples, trust that your son is the Holy One of God who has the words of life. In Jesus' name, amen. So when 
thinking through how to teach through this most familiar of passages. It makes a great Sunday school lesson. You get the flannel graph up and you have coloring sheet. This is a very memorable, dramatic miracle. It's attested to in all four gospels. So what do you do with it? How do you come at it? Well, one of the things I did inductively is to try to make a list of what, what is unique that John brings to the table. John is his name. Um, John brings to the table. If John is now going to write a fourth account, my, my logic is this. If John is now going to write a fourth account, being aware of the others, he must have a particular angle he wants to come at. And one of the values of a multiplicity of witnesses is you get that confidence the Deuteronomic standard that something is testified to by two or three witnesses, that is firmly established. And the synoptics give us that. They, they overlap tremendously. They're called the synoptics for that reason, like synonyms. And John, we've seen, has picked and chosen which portions he wants to relate, but he relates this. And so I, I made a list of what details the other gospels give, and John leaves most of them out. John leaves most of them out, and he adds a couple significant ones. And I think that's going to help us frame what he wants us to see. There's one event, but different authors want to focus on different aspects. So, for instance, Mark tells us in Mark 6, 30 to 44, that this occurred shortly after Jesus sent out the 12, and they returned and when they returned, they brought news of John the Baptist's death. And that combination of hearing the report of their ministry, hearing the report of John's um, beheading, causes Jesus to withdraw with them to rest. Mark gives that. Um, he also gives that the, the crowd was told where Jesus was as footrunners saw them and would spread the news. We get more accounting for the size of this crowd. Mark gives those details. Mark also adds that Jesus went ashore from a boat up to this mountainy place and that before he fed them, he taught them. John, John isn't interested in that. It's not that John's saying that didn't happen, but John's omission indicates to us that's not his concern. Obviously, if it was his concern, he'd tell us. He, he leaves out events that are incidental to his purpose. Mark gives us those events. We also learn, and this is actually common to all three synoptics, that the disciples, as evening approaches, urge Jesus to send the crowd away so they can get food and lodging. And Mark gives us that Jesus dismisses the crowd, goes alone to pray, and sends the disciples away. Matthew links this only with learning of the death of John the Baptist. Mark gives us both, that the two things happen. The 12 return, they're going to tell Jesus how their ministry went, and they're going to give Jesus news of the beheading of John. And, and we know that John is aware of that, John the Gospel writer, because he references John's arrest in three. He just never follows it up. Matthew also tells us that Jesus had compassion on the crowd when he saw them. Both Matthew and Mark actually emphasize Jesus' compassionate shepherding heart. He sees these crowds, he's tired, he wants to withdraw, and he, he welcomes them. Um, Matthew also lets us know that in addition to the 5,000 men, he says 5,000 men, not counting the women and the children. So some have estimated that the actual feeding could be as great as 25,000. John isn't interested in that detail. But Matthew also tells us again, he immediately sent the disciples away and dismissed the crowd. Luke, if you remember from a few years ago in our study, Luke sets this up with the disciples returning from being sent out with a report of what they've done. No mention of John's beheading. Luke adds the detail they first withdraw to Bethsaida, 
which is interesting because we're to learn Philip's from there. Um, Jesus welcomes the crowd and he taught them about the kingdom of God. So Luke and Mark have Jesus teaching. Um, all three of them have Jesus welcoming. They want to focus on Jesus' compassion for the multitudes of Israel. Jesus' compassion is a shepherd for a flock. Jesus teaching them. And again, the 12 coming to him at evening, urging him to send them away. And then Luke doesn't even tell us what happens afterwards. It just jumps to one time Jesus was praying. So now let's consider what's unique in John. John drops all those things out. Here's what's unique to John. He alone tells us the approaching Passover. He alone tells us that before the disciples ever urge him to send the crowds away, Jesus is already having on his mind the feeding. He, he tests Philip. Jesus doesn't feed them at the urging of the disciples. He's already planning this. And most significantly, John and John alone tells us the crowd's response. That is striking when you read through Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We have no idea how the crowd responded. It, what we do know is Jesus immediately sends them away. Jesus immediately retreats. And there's a sense of why. And I think primarily John is, is telling us why that is. I mean, it is kind of striking. If you read the synoptics, Jesus does this great miracle. And, and Matthew immediately Jesus sent the crowd away, sent the disciples across the lake and went off to pray. Mark, same thing. So all three gospels have Jesus sending them away and no response from the crowd. And so I'm coming at this suggesting that John's adding of those details, the Passover, that he takes the initiative, that we learn how the crowd responds, and then we're given the reason for why Jesus departs is pretty significant and central to John's point titled this message, The, the Feeding, Jesus Feeds and Leaves the 5,000. John is going to show us the feeding, but he's going to tell us why Jesus departs. Okay? So we're going to look at this in three points. First, number one, Jesus' withdrawal, whoa, Jesus' withdrawal and the crowd's pursuit. Jesus' withdrawal and the crowd's pursuit. And, and one of the reasons why, if, even if you are here last week, I don't think I put 15 in the first section. I'm convinced it is now, is you get a bookend. The text begins and ends with Jesus retreating, withdrawing to the mountains. It frames our discussion. Verse 1, after this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Our large crowd was following him because they saw the signs he was doing. Jesus went up on the mountain. How does it end? Verse 15, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain. So the opening and closing of our text has Jesus withdrawing to a mountain. as so that gives us a framing of the chunk. Now after this, is simply to say this happens in sequence, but no idea how far apart. Depending on whether or not the unnamed Feast of the Jews in John 5, 1 is a Passover or not, we are roughly six months or even a year past where we were last. John, again, isn't interested here in telling us exactly where. So after this, Jesus withdrew, and your blanks here are to the hill country, hill country east of the Sea of Galilee. It's less a mountain and more a hilly, mountainous area. Um, the far side of the Sea of Galilee would be the east side, because Jesus was last in Jerusalem, and so across the sea would be to the east. That's where he is, and this, this harmonizes perfectly with the account that he goes to Bethesda. After this, Jesus withdrew to the hill country east of the Sea of Galilee. And John isn't interested in why. There's no indication of John the Baptist. There's no indication about the 12 being returning. He, he just wants to set up the event. Jesus is there, and a large crowd is following him. 
And again, John doesn't give us the details the other gospel writers do of how the crowd learned, how the news spread, not on his focus. But he does give us this detail. Um, Well, actually, I'm getting ahead of myself. Jesus withdrew to the hill country because of the growing conflict that we saw at the end of chapter 5, the people trying to kill him and to be alone with his disciples. Now, the large crowd was following him, but he does give us the approaching Passover. And there's a couple reasons that's significant. One, this also helps explain the size of the crowd. We know from Deuteronomy 19 that three times a year, the Jews are required to go to three feasts and Passover is one of them. And so knowing that Passover is drawing near would account for why so many people be moving about traveling on the roads. To give you one example of just how large a group of people in Acts chapter two, I'm in a men's group, we're going through Acts, at Pentecost, another one of the Jewish feasts, they, they're, they're, these are the people who are the representatives in Jerusalem. Um, men from Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya, belonging to Cyrene, visitors from Rome, Cretans, and Arabians. So we know that Jews from all over the world are converging on Jerusalem. And we know that this is one of those roots. So it helps explain the size of the crowd. But more importantly, and the ESV kind of doesn't make this as, as significant, John grammatically connects the approach of the Passover with what Jesus is about to say. So John doesn't just tell us the Passover to help explain the crowd, but he tells us the Passover to explain why Jesus says to Philip what he says. And then we're also told why the crowd is following him. The approaching Passover helps explain the size. And they followed him because they had seen signs. And and John's text is emphatic. These are all imperfects. They were following him because they were seeing. They they are active in pursuing Jesus. The crowd was following because they saw the signs he was doing on the sick. John's only told us about one sign, the the healing of the man by by uh, by the pool. But we know from the other Gospels, Jesus was healing all sorts of people. And John assumes we know that. He, he hasn't told us about all of that, but, but he knows we know that, and so he references that. The crowd's following him, which, which suggests another reason why he might include this um, narrative and, and why he frames it the way he does. Uh, turn back to chapter 2. If you remember, if you were here when we taught through chapter 2, I made a, a big deal, and I still do, about the end of chapter 2. John's gospel is emphatic. Salvation is by faith and faith alone. To whoever believe in him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. John 3.16, whoever believes in Jesus has eternal life. John is so emphatic on this point. And so I think the, the ending of chapter two ought to trouble us. It ought to jar us up. It ought to make us go, whoa, whoa, what? And we ought to wait for John to explain it. This is what he says at the end of chapter two. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. And so having just read that exact formula being written in chapter 1, you turn back one more page to chapter 1, Verse 11 and 12, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, 
And what does it say back in 2.25? They believed in his name. That's exactly what 1.12 says you're supposed to do. And so the response of Jesus to not entrust himself, to distance himself from them, is meant to be surprising. Here, I think, in chapter 6, we get a fuller explanation for why that is. Here's a crowd following Jesus because they saw signs. And Jesus is, at the end of this narrative, going to split from them. He is not going to entrust himself to them. He's going to cross a sea to get away from them. And so I think we're going to see in this text why that might be. Why would Jesus do that? We, we also know from chapter 4, when the nobleman's son, that Jesus rebukes, he's discouraged by this response. He says in John 4, 48, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. So there's something about craving for, demanding signs that displeases, discourages Jesus. And yet, this gospel is written. Many other signs Jesus did in the presence of his disciples that are not written. But these have been written. These what? These signs have been written so that you might believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So John wrote a book of signs that we might believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God which is why I emphasize it's critical what we make of these signs, how we perceive these signs. John wrote the book, in many respects, of signs so we could believe. And it is clear from the end of chapter 2, it's clear from chapter 4, and it's clear from John 6, there is a faith, a response to signs that Jesus wants to distance himself from. So I want to I know what that is. I want to make sure my faith, my apprehension of his signs is consistent with what Jesus desires that's, that's my goal. It's to help understand what is it about their faith? What is it about? I mean, these, they're falling out to a wilderness area. They're putting, they're putting skin in the game. They're walking. They're going somewhere to see him. They're not just watching on YouTube. They're out there in the hot sun. There's some level of commitment. And at the end of chapter 6, many of his disciples, many of them are going to depart. This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? So let's keep our eyes open. See if we can see why that is. So that's, that's the setting. Jesus' withdrawal and the crowd's pursuit. That's the context. We've got a pursuing crowd, Jesus retreating back up to the hill country. And that then, and this is one of John's original unique features, he tells us, lifting up his eyes then, verse 5, and seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. So I think one of the things John is doing is correcting the wrong assumption that because the other three Gospels accurately show that the, the disciples towards evening are like, hey, Lord, send them away. You might get the impression Jesus feeding the 5,000 was in response to their initiative. No, John makes it clear. Jesus knew what he was going to do from the beginning. Jesus takes the initiative and he tests Philip. He tests Philip. Why Philip? We'll be told in Luke, Philip's from Bethesda, which is where they're near. Makes sense. And so he says to Philip, where are we to buy bread so these people may eat? Testing Philip. So Jesus challenging question. Jesus challenging question. Now that raises in my mind, if this is a test, what, what would be a passing answer? What would a passing answer be? And for this to be a fair test, I can't go to anything Jesus is about to say because Philip doesn't know that. So presumably, this test is meant to see how Philip can put together what he's heard, what he's learned, what he's seen. So what, in chapters 1 to 5, was Philip supposed to see and understand to lead him to pass this test? I don't think he passes the test. 
he expresses confusion, bewilderment. So what, what should Philip have put together? Well, there's even a hint in what Jesus says. It's possible, but not certain, that Jesus' question is echoing a question Moses asked in Numbers chapter 11. Moses, in, in same, similar exasperation, where am I to give meat to all these people? For they weep before me and say, give us meat that we may eat. So it's, it's possible that even Jesus' question is, should be echoing in, in Philip's mind what Moses said. But John's already given us a hint. He says, and the NASB gets this more accurately, the Jewish Passover is approaching, therefore, Jesus said. Because the Passover was approaching, Jesus says what he says. Because the Passover was near, Jesus, lifting up his eyes, seeing the crowd, speaks to Philip and tests him. Also, even though John doesn't directly emphasize Jesus' compassion on the crowd, we do get notes of that here as well. John's phrasing echoes how he speaks in chapter four. Remember when the Samaritans were coming and the disciples didn't see any potential for ministry? They were too busy wondering about food. There's a connection there. And Jesus says to them in John 4, 35, do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Jesus lifts up his eyes. I'm quite confident Jesus takes his own counsel and he sees ministry. He sees an opportunity to serve. He sees an opportunity for a harvest. But that's not, I think, John's main emphasis. He's connecting this to the Passover. So here's some thoughts already. What do we have antecedently? What has come before that, that, that Philip might have put together? First, we have John the Baptist had already called Jesus the Lamb of God. John the Baptist had twice in the text called Jesus the Lamb of God. And if you'll keep your finger here, turn back to, to Exodus 12. Let's take a look at the first Passover. There's a connection between the approaching Passover, Jesus' question, that's a test to Philip. Um, so let's turn back to um, Exodus chapter 12 briefly. And I'll make one other point while you're turning there. Jesus is going to be speaking when they meet him on the other side of the lake about bread. Bread come down from heaven, the true bread, the bread of life. And starting in verse 51, he's going to stop speaking about bread. And he's going to say, the bread that I give you is actually my flesh. And from 51 on, it's no longer bread. It's eating his flesh and drinking his blood, which connects it, you'll see, even back further to the Passover. Um, we'll just pick it up in verse 5, 12, 5. The lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You shall take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. So we've got the institution of the Passover, a lamb being sacrificed, whose flesh the people eat, whose blood they put on their doorpost to protect them. And we know Jesus' discourse is going to move to flesh and blood. That's part of it. But the other thing to get is just how close to this event, how closely connected the Passover is with the institution of manna, where Jesus directly connects this. In chapter 12, just work with me, chapter 12 is the institution of the Passover. Chapter 13 is the consecration of the firstborn and the actual leaving of Egypt. In chapter 14, we have the crossing of the Red Sea. 
In chapter 15, we have the song of Moses, a song of triumph, and Moses turning the bitter water sweet at Marah. And then chapter 16, if your Bible's got headings, mine says, bread from heaven. So the institution, the provision of Passover is directly connected sequentially with the Passover. The Passover is that final plague and miracle where God provides a provision for the Israelites. And I suppose for any Egyptians who believed and wanted to protect themselves. It's, it's what finally broke Pharaoh's hardened heart, for a time at least, and they're allowed to depart and leave. They leave, Pharaoh changes his mind, they're cornered against the Red Sea. God parts the Red Sea, they cross through, Moses sings a song, they get to a place for water, to drink, and then immediately turn to bread to eat. And so Jesus, thinking of the Passover, I think, is hoping that Philip puts together some of these pieces. This is the Lamb of God. This is the prophet like Moses. Philip himself, in chapter one, had confessed this, and here's your next point. Philip had already made a great confession about Jesus. Listen to what Philip had to say in chapter one, verse 44 to 45. Now Philip was from Bethesda, and the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So Philip has already said everything Moses wrote in the law and the prophets is about Jesus. That would include the prophet like Moses in Deuteronomy 18. That would include the seed of the woman who had crushed the head of the serpent. That would include the scepter, the ruler from the tribe of Judah, Maybe he's going to put this together. The prophet like Moses near Passover, they're out in the wilderness. Maybe, maybe these are pieces Jesus is hoping Philip will put together. Or at the very least, Philip could say, Lord, I don't know. You know you're the Christ. You're the Holy One of God. You're the new Moses. I'm sure you'll do something. But, but we move from Jesus' challenging question to Philip and Andrew's confusion. Philip and Andrew's confusion. And, and Philip's answer is that the crowd's need for food was far too great to supply. Now, a denarius, and Philip says 200 denarii would not give them enough food for each to have a morsel, a bite. A denarius is a day's wage for a day laborer. So this is about eight months' pay for a day laborer. Eight months' salary for someone doing hard physical labor. And if you figure that out with the math, and I won't bore you with it, you, you learn what we know outside the Bible, which is their food costs were far greater than ours. One of the things about living in the West, living in America, we've got the, we've got the cheapest food going. And I mean that at both levels. We have cheap food, and we have cheap food. Um, no, D.A. Carson in this commentary estimates that up to 80% of the Jewish income was spent on food. Remember, the land was leased to them, was given to them by God, it reverted to them. And there was no property taxes in Israel. So most of your energy and work went for sustenance and for food, and maybe that remaining 20% for clothing. Food, getting food's a big deal. You can work the math out. How much, eight, how much bread, just bread, eight months wages for a day laborer would buy today, divide that by 5,000 or even 10 or 15,000, and you'll understand that what Philip's saying is three or four dollars, two, two to four dollars per person wouldn't give them each enough to have a bite. If we were planning a church potluck and we could plan to spend two to four dollars per person, you'd all have a lot more than a bite of food. I assure you Holly would, would make that work, <laughs> right? Buying in bulk. 
So this gives us an indication their costs are higher. And Philip just says, look, not, not even that they have 200 denarii, not even that there would be stores or, or merchants capable in the nearby cities to sell that much food, but, but this is a staggering amount of food we need. He has no idea, he has no clue. And then um, we learn, let me turn back to, uh, to John 6, we learn next that Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Um, now, we're not entirely sure what this boy is doing here. You, you may have heard, some people fill in the white spaces, there's a boy and he offered his lunch to Jesus, maybe. It's, it's possible he came there, his mother saw the crowds and sent him out to sell them, we don't know. Um, it, we're not certain, that's not important. So as sentimental and as cute, do you, have a, do you have a biscuit for Jesus? Can be, in a Sunday school lesson, that's not where John's going with this. It's there, this meager, small provision is present. Um, Andrew, Philip, I mean, Andrew um, tells about the boy with a meager supply of bread and fish, five barley loaves. This is what poor people would eat. Barley, the cheapest grain available to them. Now again, there's echoes in the Old Testament. Let me read to you. There's a miracle similar to what Jesus does in 2 Kings. Let me just read it to you. It's four verses long. 2 Kings, the reference is there. A man came from Baal Shalisha, bringing the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley and fresh ears of grain to his in his sack, and Elisha said, Give to the men that they may eat. But his servant said, How can I set before this before a hundred men? So he repeated, Give them to the men that they may eat, for thus says the Lord, They shall eat and have some left. So he set it before them, and they ate and had some left, according to the word of the Lord. So this is not an unprecedented miracle of, of, a, of an, in, an apparently insufficient supply going the distance with leftovers. But, but that doesn't ring any bells for them either. So we, we move from Jesus' challenging question to Philip and Andrew's confusion to Jesus' miraculous provision. Jesus' miraculous provision, verses 10 to 13. Jesus said, have the people sit down. Notice the confidence. He already knew what he was going to do, we're told. And now he's confident. Have them sit down. Now, there was much grass in the place. By the way, that's another mark of eyewitness testimony. It just so happens that around Passover, there would be grass in that place. Jesus took the, the so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as was needed. The other gospels fill in that Jesus distributed it through the twelve. would have taken a long time if Jesus was handing it out one by one. Now, what's remarkable here is, is no <laughs> That the miracle in scope is enormous. Think how many pounds of biscuits, their bread loaves are probably closer to a, a bread roll or a biscuit and dried fish most likely. Think how much food that would be, how much that would weigh, the scope of this. Especially when you factor in Matthew's note that there's women and children here as well, which makes sense, the people traveling to Jerusalem, many of them would bring their entire family. They'd be gone for a few weeks. And so... What we see here is a staggering miracle, but John and none of the gospel writers actually tell us how it happens, which is remarkable. I mean, I'm curious, aren't you? Like, he's got the bread, he's breaking, he's passing it up, does it just sort of appearing? We don't know. What we see is the result of the miracle. But just pause and, and stare in wonder at the power of God. This is fish that was never born. This is fish that has never swum in any sea. This is wheat that was never sprouted. 
God created, as far as I can tell, ex nihilo, out of nothing, fully formed fish, dried bread, made out of grain. It also, notice, has an appearance of age. It's not legitimate. God can create things with an appearance of age when that suits his need. He tuck that away. But it's a it's, it's staggering miracle. Staggering miracle. And it's scope. I mean, just, just think of how small five biscuits and two fish would be. And to feed. And, and notice the, the, the provision. He had them sit down, give thanks, and distribute the food. The entire crowd ate their fill of food. It's not that everyone got a little bit. It's not that everyone got just enough. Everyone's stuffed. Another cool thing is all of these people got to participate in the miracle. They got to eat the miracle bread. I mean, there are people who are living then that ate bread that Jesus had multiplied somehow (laughs) that came out of nowhere, miracle food, absolutely staggering. And then there's leftovers, (laughs) And this is the supply of our God. He is not stingy. I mean, I think, of, I think of Psalm 107. He satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. And there are 12 baskets left over, just enough for each of the disciples to have a basket, probably a lunch basket, not some garbage bale thing, but, but still a sizable. You've see, I've seen the pictures, and it's like these giant things. Like, like they're carrying giant baskets around with them in the wilderness? Probably not. But that they have like a lunch pack, a sack, a basket for lunch, that, that probably would be more likely. But still, all these people eat their fill with 12 baskets of leftovers. Notice Jesus is careful. We're not going to, whatever God's given, we're not going to waste, we're going to save it. That's, that's Jesus' miraculous provision. The disciples gather 12 baskets full left over. Which then brings us to the crowd's response and Jesus' withdrawal. We started with Jesus' withdrawal and the crowd's pursuit. Now the crowd's going to have a response, and Jesus is going to take off. And this, I think, is kind of the point. I mean, John tells us of this miracle, Jesus' power, the power of God on display, the, the lavish generosity of God. It's all there. But I think this is the real point here. This is the piece John adds that explains the other gospels. Why? Why would Jesus take off. How did they respond? What did they think of this? How, what did, we, we get told by John, verses 14 and 15. When the people saw the sign he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So the crowd's great confession, the crowd's great confession. This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. And on this point, they are entirely accurate. The problem here is not they misinterpret Jesus' identity. They make the connections. They see it. Moses gave our fathers food in the wilderness. We're in the wilderness, and this man gave us food. They're going to say as much a little later on. They get it. Once Jesus does the sign, the connection, the symbolism, the the, the paralleling to to Moses and his ministry is clear and obvious to them, and they get the powerful miracle. No one is confused that a miracle has taken place. There are some commentators who try to turn this into sort of like a Marxist lesson. You've heard this before, that the boy took his food out, and then everyone else was like, well, I guess I'll share my food. When everyone shares all their food, you have leftovers. That is not what's going on. It's a sign that people marvel. They marvel at the sign. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this 
is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. And I would argue nothing about that confession displeases Jesus. That is an orthodox confession. Uh, I'll read to you. We've turned there numerous times. You can turn there if you'd like with me. Um, but, but Deuteronomy 18 is the reference to the prophet. Moses writes this, The Lord your God will raise up from you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him, and whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak to them in my name. I myself were required of him. Is Jesus the prophet like Moses? You bet he is. They're right. That's good. That's, that's orthodox. That's correct. But what is required, what is the appropriate response? If, you've ident- if you're an Israelite and you've identified the prophet like Moses, what is the one command God gives you? Listen to him. And there's a warning. You won't listen to him, you're going to have to answer to me. It doesn't say make him king. Listen to him. Listen to him. So they get the right conclusion And I would suggest to you that what's about to happen and even their desire to make him king is good evidence. Jesus knows, even though they're willing to say, that's that's the prophet like Moses, that's him. They're not willing to respond to him that way. They're not willing to listen to him that way. In fact, if you look over at John 6, verse 60, what's the one thing required of those who identify the prophet like Moses? Listen to him. Many of his disciples heard it. They said, 660, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? In case you're not putting the dots together, John makes it explicit. So they can identify him as the prophet, but they won't respond to him like they ought to. So they can, there's an intellectual assent that he must be the prophet. But what Jesus cares about is, is will you actually obey? Will you actually fall into line with who you claim I am? So elsewhere he'll say, why do you, why do you call me Lord, Lord? And not do what I tell you. Which is to say, I don't believe you. <laughs> you call me Lord, but do what you want. So they confess he is the prophet like Moses point to. Jesus had fed them miraculously in the wilderness. There's a lot of parallels here. Passover, maybe even bringing some of that to more mind. Now notice point B, the crowd's zealous intention. The crowd's zealous intention. They sought to take him by force, to make him king. And and between this and what follows, I think it becomes clear what is lacking in their faith. A a faithful Israelite, if they identified, I think think that's the prophet like Moses. I I think that's him. Well, I better listen to what he says. I better pay attention to what he says. That's what we saw the Samaritans do, right? When the Messiah comes, he'll teach us all things. And Jesus stayed with them and taught them, and they begged him to stay. They recognized him as the prophet, and they responded rightly. Teach. We will listen. They don't want teaching. They want a king who can give them miracle food. And when they find Jesus the next day, and he won't give them more food, and he gives them teaching instead, they reject it and go away. And Jesus, knowing what's in the hearts of men, knows that's the issue. 
So when you put all that together, there's every reason you'd want this person to be such a king. Here's your blank. They wanted an earthly king and savior. If 80% of your income went to food, a man who can feed you every day, miraculously, with your fill of food, that's a great king. I mean, this is the ultimate welfare state. No, you got a king, and every morning he just magically makes food for everybody. I mean, there are people today that want that from their government, right? You get the natural inclination for this. And if some of the miracles Jesus has done include raising the dead, you'd go fight for a king who would raise you from the battlefield if you died, right? There's every human reason, in other words, to want such a king. Not that wanting food is a bad thing, but they only want the material blessings, and they don't see beyond it. They don't see beyond it that if this is indeed the prophet like Moses, we need to listen to him. That's why this is an entire unified text. Look, look at the end of the chapter. After the decline and the abandonment of all the disciples, not all, nearly all the disciples. Verse 67, Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered to him, Lord, to whom should we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One from God. Look, I know you're the prophet like Moses. I know you're the one God sent. And I know if there's anything I need to do, it's stay with you and receive and hear your words. I don't think Peter understood all the eating flesh and drinking blood language. I'm, I, I suspect he was as confused and confounded as everyone else. But what he did know is your teaching and your teaching alone is life. So I'm not going anywhere. That's the contrast to the majority of the people, this crowd. So they want Jesus to be a king. And when Jesus enters Jerusalem, the triumphal entry later in John chapter 12, turn to John 12 really quickly. John chapter 12. They call him king again. And you even ask, is, is Jesus king a bad thing? No, Jesus is king. But it's clear they want a certain type of king and not another type of king. You want a king as in someone who gives you food and circuses. You want somebody who gives you benefits and, and privileges. The other aspect of a king is someone to obey, a sovereign, a lord, a liege. Someone who has the right to command. Not so interested in that. But the free food? Absolutely. And so when he rides into Jerusalem, verse 12 of chapter 12, the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, so they took branches of palm leaves, went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Not necessarily the same crowd, but we have a large crowd here, maybe some overlap. But then look at Jesus being questioned by Pilate. I think we get some clarity. What's wrong with them wanting Jesus as king? Chapter 18, John 18, 33 to 36 so Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this on your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. Oh, the, the crusaders had read this. But my kingdom is not from the world. So Jesus is a king, 
And he will come a second time as we piece this together as a conquering political king. But Jesus came in his first coming as a king to, to lead a redeemed, the picture of the Exodus being delivered from sin, to rule in the hearts of his people, commanding them to righteousness and obedience. And oh, they're not interested in that. When Jesus' message is called to, to humble yourself, self-denial, his exposure of sin, ironically, this crowd that wanted to come and take him by force, this crowd, maybe not the same crowd, but another crowd, the king of Israel, tragically in John, turn to 19, John 19, and we will sing our closing song. I know we're running a little late, but we gotta sing our closing song. Um, John 19, you think, think of how nationalistically proud the Jews were, how much they dis, were disgusted by and reviled the Gentiles and the pagans. We've never been slaves to anyone. We're not filthy Gentiles. Pilate, we'll get here eventually, Pilate is forced into doing what he does, but he wants to stick it to the Jews in every chance he gets, even as he's forced to offer up Jesus. Verse 14, now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, behold your king. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? Oh, how did the chief priests answer? We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests cried. So he delivered him over to be crucified. So what does that mean for us? What does that mean for us? Why does Jesus depart your blank? He would not be that type of king. It means as we await his second coming, where he will bring an army, where he will defeat his foes, where he will set up a kingdom, Jesus would be king of you. Not to conquer for you, but to rule you. Jesus would be God's prophet for you, to whose word you must listen and receive. And this is part of the tragedy. In the third world today, the prosperity gospel is, 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 is thriving. And you can see why poor people have Westerners fly in with nice suits and clothing who promise them, if you become a Christian, you'll be healthy, you'll be wealthy just like me. And lots of people, like this crowd, say, we're fully on board then. Jesus would distance himself from such people. He gets in, he, he goes away. He leaves them. He doesn't entrust himself to them. And he would not do so for similar people today. Or in the West, it was less than that day now, but there's a time where Christianity gave you a certain amount of social acceptance, social credibility. I mean, even today, it's, it's virtually impossible for a politician for any higher office to run as an atheist. Uh, I mean, that day is waning. I'm sure more and more will come. But if you think back in the last 50 years, there's a certain amount of social credibility you got. And, and, and if your interest in Jesus is to give you that, to, to add to your resume, Jesus would leave as well. But let's bring it in even more to people right here. There are many attendant benefits to Christ, good things, like bread. Jesus will strengthen your family. Jesus will give your life meaning. Jesus will give you hope. Jesus will not leave or forsake you. You will have a companion through the trials of life. Jesus has great promises for you of what God will do for you. All these things are true. And if that's all you want Jesus for, 
Jesus would cross a lake to get away from you. That's what I get from this. Jesus does want you. He wants you as his subject. He wants you as his citizen. He wants you as an obedient son or daughter. But if you just want Jesus for what he can offer you, you just want the blessings. Jesus would cross a lake, walking on water, to get away from you, like he does this crowd. John and John alone tells us why he does this. John and John alone tells us why that is. So if you're sitting here today and you find Jesus attractive, but you don't like his teaching about forgiving your enemies and your anger, understand if this is the prophet, then God's gonna require it of you if you don't hold his word. Or if you love the world, it's bright in your eyes. Jesus would cross a lake to get away from you. You don't like Jesus' sexual ethic. You, don't want to, you, you find his calls to purity, holiness, challenging. You just reject them. Or if, if, if you don't like the way Jesus would order your home, or any number of other things, the, the contrast to Jesus leaving the 5,000 and then the 5,000 leaving him is Peter and Peter's confession. I, know, I don't know many things, but I know two things. You alone have the words of eternal life and you are the Holy One from God. That, that's what marks a Christian. So don't miss the forest for the trees. Don't, don't be like this crowd. Understand that if Jesus is the Christ, if Jesus is the prophet like Moses, then the litmus test about whether or not you're his disciple or not, your litmus test of the reality of your profession of faith is what you do with his words, even the hard ones, even the challenging ones. This teaching is hard. Who can listen to it, said those who deserted him. Peter, you have the words of eternal life.